Hi, everyone. We are so glad that you're here tonight. Um, welcome to Veritas. <clears throat> if I haven't met you yet, my name is Colleen. Um, I'm one of the directors of Veritas. And I'm married to Andrew in the back doing tech. Um, you've probably seen him back there playing music. Um, and we have two small kids, James and Charlotte. Um, you might have seen them hanging out at the barbecue kickoff uh, or before um, Veritas one night for dinner. Um, and they love getting to see you guys, so whenever they get to come up, um, you guys make them feel really cool. They think that you guys are all like their best friends. Um, but I spend a lot of my time at home with them, and then I get to spend the rest of my time um, doing Veritas stuff. And so when I get to be here on a Tuesday night um, and doing stuff with you guys, it's really fun. It's, I see it as a privilege. Um, so I'm really glad to get to speak with you guys tonight. Um, so this summer, we've been going through a six-week series called Enough Already. And every week, we've explored some obstacles that are preventing us from living God's mission together um, in the way that he has called us. And we've been considering, how does Jesus bring healing and relief? How does he help us fight against perfectionism and shame and the effects of social media? And tonight, we're talking about comparison. Has anyone ever played that game called Photo Hunt? It's a touchscreen game. You might have seen it at Shakespeare's. No, no one. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, well, it's a game. It's a touchscreen game. Um, it's at Shakespeare's. It's so addicting. If you go there, play it. I think it's a quarter. Um, and it's a comparison game. So you're shown two photos side by side that are identical, except for five differences. And the objective is to find and identify the differences between these pictures before the timer runs out. And you just tap on the differences. You find them. And just like in this game, we all look at other people, and we see things that are different, and we see things that are similar. Comparison is something that we all do, right? We all feel that. It's not inherently wrong to compare. In the last few weeks, our speakers have gone back to Genesis 1. And they've looked at the way that God originally created humans. He created humans equally in his image, and he created them distinctly and uniquely, man and woman. So every person is equal, but every person is different. And it was easy then to compare and see those differences without being envious and resentful and proud. But then sin entered in, and no longer was it easy for humans to just compare neutrally without a judgment. Because just as sin entered in, envy entered in, and so did despair, and so did this desire to keep ourselves at the center of our lives. The last few weeks, um, <clears throat> like I said, we've kind of seen that in us, and so tonight we're going to talk about um, what this looks like with comparison. So comparison, for me, um, has been a constant theme throughout my whole life. Um, so in high school, these are my thoughts. Coach likes her way better than me. I'm not as smart as her. I wish I could do my makeup like hers. I'm a way better Christian than them. In college, I'm not as funny as her. I work so much harder than them. Why do guys always ask her on dates? Why not me? I want to be part of that friend group. In my 20s, I thought, I wish I was at least dating someone since everyone around me is getting married. It feels like that. I wish I made that much money. I will never look that good in jeans. All these thoughts, right? As a mom, we spend our money way more wisely than them. Why isn't my marriage like that? Why doesn't my kid obey like other kids do? She is a way better mom than me. And all of these thoughts have gone through my head probably thousands of times at different stages of my life. Um, and do you see how they're all centered around me. How do you compare? Maybe you compare yourself to the person sitting next to you in a variety of ways. Maybe you compare your body to your younger or skinnier bodies. Maybe you compare your maturity as a Christian to someone else. Maybe you compare your relational giftings, how funny you are, how kind, how thoughtful, how extroverted, how introverted. Maybe you compare your friend groups and your attention from boys that you get. 
Maybe you compare your conversion story. My story is not as cool as that person's story. Maybe you compare your style and appearance. Maybe you compare involvement, your perceived capacity for school or ministry or friends. Maybe you compare experiences like big internships or trips to Europe or Insta-worthy experiences. Maybe you compare dating relationships, right? Number of boyfriends, quality of relationship, how many dates you've been on, how many girls you've kissed. Maybe you compare how popular you are. Maybe you compare with someone else who meets more with a Veritas staff member. Maybe you compare how often you read your Bible or how often you pray or variety. I mean, you could you go on and on, right? Does this real-life comparison game feel exhausting? <laughs> I run through that, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so much of our thoughts and mind and attention that we're just spending all this energy sizing each other up and looking at other people and thinking about ourselves based on the people that we see around us. Even one of Jesus' closest friends during his time on earth struggled with comparison. What did God say to him, and what does he say to us? You have your Bible, open it to John 21. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, 21, 18, 18 to 22. So in John 21, 18, Peter gets some pretty hard news. Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So what was Jesus talking about here? What does he mean? Stretching out your hands then was a way to talk about crucifixion. So here, Jesus is telling Peter that that's how he's eventually going to die. He's going to be crucified. How does Peter respond to that news? In the next verse, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, referring to John, following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. And it says, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So Jesus had just told Peter that he was going to die by crucifixion. And Peter says, well, what about him? How is John going to die? He literally turns from looking at the Lord, having a conversation with him. He turns from the Lord, who he had just been told to follow, and he turns to John. He looks at him, and he begins to compare himself to John. He begins to measure his situation, his death, against John's death. He wanted to compare Jesus' plan for his life with Jesus' plan for John's life. And who knows exactly what he was thinking. Maybe he was wondering if Jesus was going to let John off with an easy death, dying peacefully in his sleep, while he dies a really painful death. Maybe he was thinking about John sitting next to Jesus at the Lord's Supper, envious of his really close relationship with Jesus. Maybe he's wondering, is he going to get a better deal than I am? If I have to suffer, will he have to suffer? So he asks, well, what about him? And Jesus' answer is shocking. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Exclamation point. So in effect, he says to Peter, what I have planned for John is none of your business. Stop comparing yourself to him and follow me. And at first glance, his reply seems a little bit harsh, you know? I mean, after all, Peter had just learned that he was going to be crucified. He's going to die this awful death. It's going to be really painful. So doesn't he need a little sympathy and compassion and understanding? Give him a little time to process this rather than being insensitive to something really, really hard. But I think that this rebuke from Jesus was actually one of the most loving things that Jesus could have said. For Peter to turn his attention away from his Savior and look at John was one of the worst things that he could have done. 
So for him to compare his situation side by side with John's was one of the most harmful actions that he could have taken. Because comparison can be futile and destructive. And Jesus loved Peter, so he protected him from this trap. He tries to call him out of it. And I think he wants to protect us too. So for the rest of the night, we're going to look at three ways that comparison can rob us of some of the things that God intends for us. Peace, relationships, and fruitfulness. So first, comparison is the enemy of peace. So wouldn't it be great, right, if comparison or if contentment and peace could just characterize our lives? What if our, our lives were like that? What if we felt peace and contentment all the time? Even if our circumstances aren't exactly what we want, we could trust, right, and show the world that God most satisfies us. But what ruins and threatens the peace that we want? Comparison. There was a study done by Emory University showing that even monkeys judge what they've got by taking a peek at the monkey next door and seeing what they're getting. Monkeys were trained basically to essentially use these stones as a kind of currency. So they were given a stone, and then they could exchange it for a really nice slice of cucumber. And the monkeys were perfectly happy with this arrangement until some, but not all of them, were given a sweet, juicy grape instead of the cucumber. So watch what happens after the monkey on the right starts getting the grapes. Okay, so I know it's so ridiculous, but that is us, right? When you watch it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is so funny. But we do it too. We want the grape, right? We don't want the cucumber. We're frustrated because someone else has something that we want, and so we just throw the cucumber right back. We don't want what we've actually been given. We want something else. And you know what it's like, too, to feel like you're getting a lesser deal. So what do you not have that you wish you had? Whose life have you been comparing yours to? When we envy and compare, we question, why don't I have that? We fret, we worry, we worry and wonder and obsess about what we think we should have. We should have what they have. We shouldn't have this cucumber, we should have the grape. Have you ever met an envious person who is content and at ease and happy? Psychologists have found that social comparison is positively correlated with depression and neuroticism and the hostility that it breeds can not only make us physically sick, but it decreases happiness. Comparison makes us miserable and left unchecked and even takes a physical toll. But this isn't new news to the Bible. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Is comparison taking a toll on you? When we envy and do not get, despair creeps in leading to dissatisfaction and guilt and disordered eating and lying 
and anxiety and depression. At Mizzou, here in Columbia, demand for campus counselors is up 62% in the last five years. And over half of Missouri college students dealt with anxiety in 2016. College mental health experts directly attribute much of this to the consequences of social comparison. And my guess is that most of us in this room feel the weight of these statistics. They feel really personal. That feels like us. Because when we compare and we feel like we're coming up short, there are often devastating consequences. We see those in our life. So not only is comparison the enemy of peace, it's also the enemy of relationships. Comparison is the enemy of relationships. To live as God intends for us means that we are characterized by love, right? Displaying God's own love to all the nations. People shall look at us and be astonished when they see us rooting for one another and encouraging each other and helping each other. They should be a little bit dazed when they see us stepping out of the limelight so that someone else gets the recognition. But what ruins and threatens that love? It's comparison. And I wonder if part of Jesus' motive for rebuking Peter's sinful comparison was to preserve his relationship with John. Because you see, comparison is a relationship destroyer. It squelches love and it stifles kindness. And it breeds competition among people that should be rooting for each other. We can't cherish our friends and envy them at the same time. You guys have all heard that classic passage, um, 1 Corinthians 13, about love. Um, it's probably read at most weddings you've been to. Um, but it, it includes love does not envy in verse 4. And Jonathan Edwards, who was a 17th century pastor, he put it this way. He said, surely to love our neighbor does not dispose us to hate him for his prosperity or be unhappy at his good. Have you ever found yourself mistreating certain friends because they have something that you want? I have. My instinct is to be angry and bitter and resent successes that those around me have. Maybe someone else got the internship that I wanted. Maybe they have the girlfriend that you wanted. Maybe their small group leader is the one that you wanted. Maybe your sister gets the attention from your parents that you think you should have. So you scorn them and you give them the cold shoulder. Maybe you don't greet them with a smile or maybe you don't engage them in conversation. Your actions are showing you have closed off and your thoughts are even uglier. So Jesus says to Peter, if it's my will that John lives, what is that to you? And what would Jesus say to you about the friends that you are envying? If it's my will that she blank, what is that to you? If it's my will that she gets invited to every single party, what is that to you? If it's my will that he did a great job, he got a great job lined up after college, what's that to you? If it's my will that she's beautiful, even without makeup, what is that to you? What if God intends for that person to be funnier or prettier or wiser or more respected than you? How will you react? Will you grow bitter and resentful and hard-hearted? So if we aren't supposed to envy, what are we supposed to do? Check out in this next video how these kids talked about their friends. I do like it, 
I don't like your recollection of me, Sammy. You have been very mean. <laughs> he um lives in a house that doesn't have squirrels in the room. We have squirrels in the basement, <laughs> so we can't watch television much because it's biting all the wires. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I can let him look sick, so um, I'm telling me to let me in. <laughs> if only you can go, you can Google it. I don't know what tag is or saying in den, um, but I think those kids are really funny. Um, but what I love about this video is that these kids, also that it's an English ac an English accent, I think that's the best. Um, but what I love is that these kids don't say some of the things that you would expect them to say when they're comparing themselves to each other, right? They don't talk about how they look really, really different in a judgmental way. They don't talk about anything more than, yeah, that person likes lettuce, I don't. You know, they, it's, it's so funny, and at least here, which is maybe, maybe a rare view of toddlers, I don't know, but you don't see this deep-seated envy about something that their friend can do well. You don't see something that they are talking about that their friend has and they don't have and they're mad about it or what their friend looks like and they're mad about it because they want to look like that. They just state a lot of facts, right? There's not a judgment to it, and they see themselves as equal but with all these differences. We're just both kids. We're both friends, right? if we can think of anything. Um, and scripture takes us a step further. So Jesus says that his spirit can give us a new reflex when things are going good for someone else. Joy. Romans 12 tells us that genuine love rejoices with those who rejoice. And Philippians 4, 8 says this. <clears throat> Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Paul's implicitly saying, let's be drawn towards these qualities. Let's not be threatened when someone else gets honored and gets the internship they've been working for, or gets married, or gets a best friend, or gets any good gift from the hand of God. Instead of raising against one another, trying to get ahead, what if we were excited about it? What if we were excited for each other? And it's not an easy reflex to rejoice over someone else, right? It takes time and grace and this conscious effort to develop, but the result is obvious. If I learn to take joy in my friends doing well, I'm going to be a more joyful person. I'm going to be a better reflection of Jesus, who takes the greatest joy when things go well. And together, we'll be a counterexample to an envious world. Where else can people come into a community and find joy rather than envy in the face of other successes? So comparison hurts not only our relationships, but also um, it's the enemy of fruitfulness. Comparison is the enemy of fruitfulness. 
why does God care about his people not comparing? Well, he cares about our function in the greater community. When we're a jealous monkey banging around on our cage because we didn't get what we want, the people, are, people around us are going to see our grumbling and complaining, right? And how are we going to be inviting them into something bigger and better? That's not going to look good, right? It's not attractive. We should be people who are stubbornly committed to serving others even when it's costly to ourselves. Phrasing the gifts and skills that we do have in ways that are helpful and living for God in whatever situation that he's placing us in. But what threatens that fruitfulness? Comparison. Jesus had a plan for Peter's life. He had a job specifically for him to do. Ephesians 2.10, you guys want to this one, tells us that God has prepared for each of us good works for us to walk in. For Peter, his good works included a really painful death, crucifixion. Jesus knew that if Peter envied John, and if he kept looking to him, he would be distracted from what God called us to do. When we compare ourselves to another, in a way we're wondering, why didn't God give me that? Why did God not make me like him? Tim Keller um, says that God has given each of us a different set of difficulties and opportunities, a different set of weaknesses and gifts, and these are our load, our responsibility before God. When we stand before God after we die, he's not going to ask us why we didn't have someone else's load. He's going to ask us what we did with ours. We'll have to answer for how we used our life, not someone else's life. Have we used it for his glory or have we used it to further our own? Maybe you find yourself wishing that you were dating someone, that you weren't single. In college and even after that, I wanted to be married so bad. And it felt like all my friends were pairing off and I was kind of left as a lone ranger. They all went on a couple dates, and I was like, well, here I am, just hanging out with myself. Um, but I was, when I was busy comparing myself to my friends and envying them, I was distracted from being a good friend. I could only think about myself. I was, could only think about what I wasn't getting, not what they might have needed. I was distracted from, from seeing God as my biggest need, the one who would satisfy me the most, rather than a boyfriend. I was distracted from the ways that God was actually calling me to glorify him in being single. I had more time. I could do things that I couldn't have done if I was married. I just couldn't see it because I was so busy thinking about myself. Maybe you spend a lot of time comparing your family with someone else's. Somehow it always seems like someone else's family and their parents have it more together or someone else's siblings are a little bit less crazy than yours and maybe someone else's family just loves each other way more than yours does. And maybe that's true. But the family that God wanted me in is the family that I grew up in. And so how is he calling me to glorify him around my family? How can I love them best? When I compare my family or my roommate to someone else's or my neighbor, I forget that this is the place that God has placed me. I am meant to be here. I am meant to bring light into the place that God has called me to. One of my favorite moments in all the Narnia stories happens in The Horse and His Boy. Um, one of the books that's after the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in one scene, the boy Shasta has been left behind. And he, as he travels on alone, he kind of starts to feel sorry for himself and because he's had all these terrible misfortunes in his life. Um, but in the midst of his emptiness, Aslan comes to him. He shows up. And Shasta asks Aslan the lion about why something happened to his friend. And this is what he says. Child, I am telling your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. What part of your story is hard to walk faithfully in? 
God reveals our own stories to us. And it is in our particular stories that he gives us grace to walk faithfully, not in someone else's story. In the Gospel of Matthew, when the Jewish, Jewish leaders had brought Jesus to Pilate, um, basically to say, hey, you need to kill him, he needs to die, Pilate knew why. Matthew records that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. They weren't just concerned about the stability of the Roman Empire. They were comparing themselves to Jesus. They were comparing themselves to his popularity, and they envied him. It was out of envy that Jesus was delivered up to be killed. And it was out of envy that he was crucified. But it is out of mercy that Jesus confronts our own sinful comparison because he wants to help us overcome it. He basically tells Peter to just stop comparing. He says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Stop comparing. He says it doesn't matter. And then he tells him, you follow me. In order for Peter to face the agonizing death that was assigned to him by God, which he didn't want, but he couldn't do anything about. He needed to hear these words from his Lord. You follow me. And Jesus gives us the same command. For every unwanted experience, for every withheld blessing, for every assignment from God, he says to us, you follow me. And these words are all that we need to hear. But we need to hear them over and over and over again. Peter needed to. We see in John 21, verse 22, um, that verse 22 is actually the second time that Peter said this to Peter, or that Jesus said this to Peter. He had just told him the same thing a moment before. In verse 19, he commanded him, follow me. So he says it twice in like a minute span. But already, Peter needed to hear these words again, and Jesus was really patient with him. He did. He repeated it a second time. You follow me. Because of our tendency to constantly compare, and the tendency in our hearts to be led away from God and his mission in our lives, we have to hear them over and over, just like Peter. And that's why as a staff team, when we talk about small groups and coming to Veritas and being around your friends who are believers and having conversations and getting coffee, that's why we encourage you to pursue things like this because it's at those places, it's in those scenarios that you're going to hear Jesus say to you again and again, you follow me. So what should we do about the things that we don't like but we can't do anything about? We must not look at others, but we must fix our eyes on Christ. That's what Peter did. And he did it for 30 years. All the while knowing that follow me meant following Christ to a really painful death. Three decades, he had this prediction just hanging over his head. But he didn't allow that to distract him from following the Lord. He knew that the worst could and would happen. Yet, he did not wallow in self-pity and he didn't lash out in anger. We know from later accounts in scripture that Peter served the Lord for all of those 30 years, bearing fruit for the glory of God. And that's what we can do because God's kindness leads us to repentance. His spirit is at work in our life to conform us to him, not to other people. And he gives us powerful grace that enables us to persevere, to follow Christ. Peter humbled himself and heeded the call to follow. And in 1 Peter 4, he encouraged his fellow believers to do the same. He says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fear of trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
So when that test or trial comes and we're tempted to compare to someone else, to look over our shoulder and see what someone else's life looks like, Peter says to us, don't be surprised. It's not as if something strange is happening to you. He says to rejoice because we have a faithful and good creator. Rest in the fact that God knows what he's doing. Don't live for the glory or the comfort of this world. Live for Christ. Follow him. We don't have to win. We get to cease striving. We get to stop playing the comparison game. We get to rest secure because he has already won an eternal reward for our sakes. Jesus is inviting you into his story, not someone else's story. So let's follow him. Amen. Amen.